It's a rough world out there just trying to shake loose a scrap to eat, let alone when you also have to worry about not being eaten. But that's life when you're someone else's meal. In that perpetual battle to stay alive, Prey paint the world a little less red, finding any number of tricks to outmaneuver, outthink, outhide, outsize, and outmuscle their would-be predators. Here, we find balance to the equation, and a little hope that things might just turn out alright. From deadly toxins to poop-shaped caterpillars, we consider these humble organisms and the various adaptations that have kept them alive and well through the eons. This is the single acorn. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Penn. And I'm Gwen. We're lifelong mates and owners of Penn and Gwen's Rental Tuxes. You know the deal. Your wife tells you last minute about a fish raising gala. Or your husband's folks waddle in unexpectedly and want to dine out on the town. You had a tuxedo at some point, but... It was last in vogue in the 80s and not back in style yet. And that paunch of yours certainly isn't making things any easier. March your tail over to Penn and Gwen's Rental Tuxes. We promise we'll have just the right fit for you. Hey there, listeners, and welcome to The Single Acorn. I am Professor Iwigi, and I'm joined here with uh, Glenn. And Glenn is our resident expert for the day. He is a lead mechanic at Captain Kildare's Aircraft Repair, which uh, I guess specializes in repairing wings on airplanes. That's right, wings on airplanes and wings on birds, especially if the birds uh, believe in some level that they are airplanes. What kind of birds are have a higher propensity towards... Cranes. I think it's because they're sort of a mechanical, you know, it's already a mechanical name, so it's easier for them to envision themselves as a machine. And Kildare, as you might guess in the title, <clears throat> who pretend to have a broken wing um, quite often as a defense. So some of our airplanes have learned to do that, which is actually not that helpful. But it gives us more work. So are you working mostly with like uh, military aircraft that are often getting in dogfights yeah. and might yeah, need a feign an injury to... Paramilitary. Which, you know, I think paramilitary means different things to different people. Teague, I don't know if it's going to be this, the focus of this podcast, but uh, we mostly work with military that are um, um, fighting, the paranor- fighting paranormal activity. That's our niche. <laughs> that is... It's a quite the niche. <laughs> we haven't worked in a couple of years, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where it might be a little too niche where opportunity for employment only comes around once every it's few feast years. Feast or famine. Yeah, when it when it yeah. happens, so it's big. We're the go to people when the paramilitary paranormal military need a broken wing fix. Gotcha. Okay. Great. Well, I really hope that all those years as a lead mechanic for Captain Kildeers uh, can help us in our I, I can exploration so. <laughs> of prey. We aim to serve. Great. So this is our, our last uh, chapter in um, a longer chapter on exploitation. So we've been talking about various forms of symbiosis, and exploitation is a form of symbiosis where one organism is exploiting another organism. So it's positively benefiting from the relationship and then the other organism is negatively impacted or harmed by the relationship and so we already talked about parasites we talked about uh, predators and now we're talking about prey and so in these symbioses these relationships between different species there are going to be adaptations so that each species can come into the relationship and not get over exploited by the other individual so hopefully your experience bears fruit (laughs) 
I hope I hope it bears delicious fruit. So we're gonna we're gonna be talking about the prey side of things though. Their defenses, their ways to survive. It'll be inspiring, right? It sounds inspiring already. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, yeah, there's always something I suppose we can learn from the natural order and if you ever find yourself in a situation confronted with a predator, these might be helpful tips. Yeah, if you just get scared and you want to do something unusual, maybe. So there are three basic strategies that prey have. So in our last episode, we were talking about how are all of the, or how are predators able to confront different organisms that exist in the world and break through their defenses in order to be able to eat them. And the prey are not just helpless and sitting around waiting to get eaten. They have a whole bunch of different defenses. Some of them are preventative. Some of them are during the actual encounter. Uh, and then some of them are on a species level response where if one gets eaten, obviously that individual dies. But uh, it might be toxic to the point where the predator has a, a learned behavior after that to avoid that. So there are basically three different categories. Like the noble sacrifice, you sacrifice yourself for the greater good of your species, like Spock. Yeah. Wait, what's the Spock example? I believe, okay, you know, this is the kind of thing maybe you researched before a podcast, but there was some sort of radioactive type thing that needed to be fixed in the, in the or the ship was going to blow up and kill everyone. And so Spock went into that area and he was like, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. He was sacrificing himself to fix the, keep the ship from blowing up apologize star trek fans but that's not quite accurate <laughs> sure well yeah so spock was going against his own self-interest and i i definitely i mean in the way that i understand organisms operating in the world that's not something that organisms willingly do it made him famous though he went in a blaze of glory maybe in the sense it was <laughs> it was serving his interest I and mean, i'm talking yeah, about down. it still right yeah okay we'll suspend that question for now i guess but yeah we'll see Okay, so the three basic strategies are you can have a behavioral adaptation that allows you to interact with predators uh, or at least prevent you from uh, getting predated upon. You can have some sort of physical feature that's on the outside of your body that acts as a defense or barrier uh, against the likely predator. And then you can also have internal mechanisms for controlling. So we'll go through the three different sort of categories of ways of dealing with predators. Do you have a favorite of those three, just as a preview? I am not a micro-level ecologist, and so I tend to focus in on and be more enamored by behaviors, because those are something that you can just, you know, from your backyard. There's Right now, there's a fledgling robin that's on the telephone. Yeah, hey, we have one of those. We have one. Here. Yeah. Well, there's one right outside of my window right now that I'm looking at, and, you know, it's facing one direction, then it hops and turns around and faces the other. And so it's just constantly being vigilant. I, the fledgling is mostly vigilant for where mom or dad is. <laughs> um, but the, the moms are being extra vigilant uh, about where potential predators are. So I, I like the behavior side of things because it's easy to observe versus if you look at like the molecular composition of a caterpillar, it's not something that's readily, readily accessible to, to study. So I tend to, yeah. Your behavior. You like the behaviors. behaviors. You can see out your window. Fair enough. One of the things that we'll find in talking about adaptations for dealing with predators is that if you have a behavior, so say you were 
you know, like you had evolved uh, hammer pants <laughs> that were like these loud, vibrant, neon-colored pants, and your defensive strategy that had hammers was to on try them? to. Are we talking? Is this MC Hammer or like? Oh, do you don't know hammers? what hammer pants are? Hammer pants were really big. I think in the late '80s, early '90s, they were those big, billowy pants with the scrunchy little ankles and waistbands. Like Sinbad oh. used to wear them on TV, and right. MC Hammer was famous for him for dancing in them. Anyway, so if you had pants like that and you were trying to hide in a raspberry bramble or a honeysuckle thicket or something like that, you had your physical appearance would not match your behavior set. And so Yeah, it'd be mismatched. Also probably true if you had pants made of actual hammers. It'd be hard to hide. They would clank. Yeah. Well yeah, so the clanking noise might actually be a different defense and and we'll talk about that in uh, a second. So whatever your physical appearance is, is going to inform your behaviors and vice versa. And so if you have really loud colors, it's probably to advertise your presence. Like you're not trying to actively conceal your appearance. But if you have really muted sort of light browns and grays and off whites and blacks, and you're sort of this mottled color uh, like maybe a woodcock is, then you might spend most of your time foraging on the ground and just kind of hunker down if there's a predator that you can detect nearby. So being camouflaged in your physical out, uh, external appearance is going to inform how you are behaving in the world. Mm. Do you know offhand, are there more brightly colored species that are actually, say, poisonous or harmful or more brightly colored species that are pretending to be poisonous or harmful? as a strategy. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about this uh, in this episode also where there are, so signals, those are signals to potential predators uh, where you are, if you're brightly colored, it's called a post-somatic coloring where you, you might have like high contrasting colors on your body, like a red, white, black snake or high contrast to the environment that you're found in. And so if you have that colors, you're trying to display to the outside world that you are different from other organisms around and highlighting that you might be potentially uh, toxic. So there are honest signals, and then there are bluffs. If you invest energy in being toxic, like say a red F. So red Fs, are extremely toxic. They have these uh, this chemical called tetrodotoxin in their bodies, and the red Fs are bright orange, but even as adults, they have these red uh, spots that persist on their back. And the more red spots they have, the more toxic the really? individual is. You can is. measure the toxicity by the Yeah, it's sort of, of a proxy for that. So that's an honest signal to potential predators. So if a predator doesn't know if something's toxic or not until it eats it, then the thing that just got eaten is essentially screwed, right? It Its signal hasn't helped hasn't it survive yet, but it to might, reproduction. The word might spread. Yeah, the word would spread, but that individual is dead. And evolution happens on an individual level. Or if you're Richard Dawkins, uh, it happens on a level of the gene. But it doesn't happen on like a population-wide level. So an individual that dies doesn't pass on its genes and so it would behoove an individual to have colorations that warned a predator in advance of being eaten that it's toxic so it doesn't get eaten this is not an answer to your question i don't know if there are more animals that have honest signals 
than that are bluff bluffers. Are there more animals telling the truth or lying? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, it's and I don't know. Fundamental. I mean, even is the universe truthful or deceptive? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's as deceptive as it can be, or as it puts in as little effort as possible. So <laughs> there are some lazy. Uh, there are research studies that have shown that in the presence of predators, animals have higher vigilance or they have an increased capacity to defend themselves. So like mussels will put on thicker shells in water where they can detect the presence of predatory fish. And so you don't want to put in more effort than you have to. So like um, there's variability within apps where each eft might not want to put in a lot of energy to produce this uh, toxin in its body. So the less energy it can spend on that, the Fewer more spots, energy maybe. that it can spend on growth and ultimately reproduction. Every animal is trying to do as little work as possible while also staying ahead of the of the predators in the environment that might yeah eat it or the other organisms that it has to compete with. So I don't really know yeah okay, what your fine. answer is. Some organisms have to be telling the truth. You know, if you're not super toxic and you're a red aft and you don't have as many red spots, it doesn't really matter because most things are still going to avoid you. Yeah. I needed that. It also sort of justified <laughs> sleeping in, since apparently the universe is doing as little work as possible. Yeah. I, uh, so why not get up earlier too. today. Yeah. No, I was just following <clears throat> my genetic mandate. Yeah, yeah exactly. So with behaviors, uh, I guess we could just break it down into sort of four subcategories. So um, the first one is not necessarily a camouflage thing, but avoiding predators altogether. And so you would just time your activity patterns based on when predators are active. So you could either time your activity levels or you could locate your activity levels where there aren't predators. I thought this was pretty fascinating when I came across this. So there's something called DL, DL, D-I-E-L, uh, refers to a 24-hour cycle. And so if you're studying DL activity patterns, you're looking at over a 24-hour cycle, how is an organism either active or inactive? So if you look at DL vertical migration, and it's something that's studied enough that people have an acronym for it. So DVM, DL vertical migration, <laughs> just refers to the vertical migration, the movement up or down in the water column of zooplankton. And in studies of this, where there are concentrations of predatory fish that are eating these zooplankton, so these tiny little microorganisms like Daphnia, which is a really common uh, biological study organism. So where there are higher concentrations of fish, you know, fish are defecating in the water, urinating in the water, releasing hormones into the water. And so their chemical signature is perceptible by Daphnia and other zooplankton. And so when that's the case, those zooplankton will tend to have more pronounced vertical migration. So more predators means that they'll spend more time lower down in the water column where it might be hard, uh, harder for the fish predators. to be able to detect them. So then there's a cost, right? Because if there wasn't a cost, then all zooplankton would just spend most of their time bottom. down at the bottom. So the cost is that there's less phytoplankton for the zooplankton to eat because the phytoplankton are up near the surface where it's warmer and where there's sunlight. Um, so there's a cost to this. And so it's a behavior that's malleable. Whereas if you are an armadillo 
regardless of your environment, you always have to spend energy producing this armored shell, all of these armored plates on your back, right? And so you can't modify that. Whereas a behavior, when there aren't predators around, you can modify a behavior and be successful in that environment in a different way. But just to clarify, armadillos can go into water and go down deep into the water if they had to. Just in case anyone's confused about that. That is not what I said. <laughs> <laughs> hey, fun fact about armadillos. They are con- uh, continually expanding their range northward. They're coming for us. They are. So associated with two different things. So one is with as climate warms uh, and things become more arid, they're able to expand the range north. And then also uh, they are somewhat like skunks where they're associated with urban habitats. If we, you know, in a hundred years, maybe we'll have them up here in Vermont, which would be Well, other fun fact, I believe this is true about armadillos. They can jump when they're startled. They'll jump straight up like three or four feet, which we spent we spent many hours at night setting up game cameras trying to document. Yeah. Or just trying to scare armadillos. Which is why they uh, are so susceptible to cars, because they'll jump. And so often they'll get like hit by a car. Not right the you know, you can, yeah, you can't run sort of straddle uh, an animal if you're going to run over it with your tires. But if it jumps, you just hit it in your grill. Unless it jumps high enough to go over the car. <laughs> yeah. <So> maybe <laughs> there's that possibility too. moving in that direction. Yeah. So you could change your vertical migration, your vertical placement in the environment, but you could also just change your activity patterns. Um, and so uh, there have been some studies in uh, in Africa where they've reintroduced lions and hyenas into game reserves, and they have a really cool baseline sense of what the activity levels are of the kudu that are there, the warthogs, elephants, um, and all the different herbivores that live in that environment. And then they can track how the activity patterns change once they introduce a predator into that environment and a nocturnal predator. The elephants so, care? They can get elephants? I did not know Well, that, so this but... is what the really cool thing is, is this is what, uh, a external physical feature, I guess, of an animal to avoid being eaten by something. You could just size class out of it. So baby elephants are more susceptible to predation than adults, which are not really susceptible at all. So with activity patterns, for the smaller things, they tended to shift to being more active during the day when those nocturnal predators were sleeping or just lounging about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they, without those predators, those nocturnal predators, warthogs would spend up to 6% of their time active. And then once the predators were introduced, that dropped to about 0.6% of their time active. So they weren't really nocturnal, but they were partially nocturnal. And then they just became completely diurnal, essentially. But then if you looked at elephants, it didn't matter at all. So once the predators were introduced, there was no change in their daily activity patterns. So another strategy that I, uh, I think I've emailed this guy a few different times over the years. Every few years I email him asking if I can get a copy of his video game. Uh, so if you see a feature that sticks out as like a prominently weird feature, so for him it was cottontails, have these cottontails, these white right. fluffy little tails, you might think, okay, maybe it's used in reproduction or s- some other feature. And so one hypothesis for why they have these white uh, tails is so that they can flag, so as an honest flag. So white-tailed deer have white tails. Yeah, And that. when they see a prey oh. or when they see a predator, they'll flag their tail. And basically what they're doing is they're signaling to that predator, I see you. And I can run away from you. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. Don't even try. Don't get me started. 
yeah. that kind of thing. And and often they're flagging to things that rely on ambush to successfully hunt. Wow. So, so then with the cottontail, the idea could be, well, maybe it's the same thing. But they cottontails have smaller little tails that they can't really flag, flag. high up in the air. Um, and they so, jump up and sort of shake it, shake their, shake their yeah, booty, and the, as they say. They're also just, they're really springy. And, and so it turns out that cottontails have these white tails because if you're a predator and you start to chase a cottontail, then instead of being able to look at the full body, because you, if you want to tackle a prey, you want to hit it right in the center where you're going to get the most amount of mass. But the tail distracts them. Yeah, so if you're following this bright white little cotton tail and you're going through a thicket of all of this other stuff where you do need to be paying attention to your environment as you're ducking under branches and jumping over logs and stones, you need to be focused on a lot of different things. But that white cotton tail is such a distracting feature and so all you can do is focus on that and you become clumsier. And if you go to strike, you're focused on that, which is just this tiny little piece at the end rather than the center of the body. Wow. Do you think that works for the deer as well when they're fleeing something? Predators can't quite hit them as well. Uh, no, for them, it's... It's, it's uh, just flagging? Yeah, it's just flagging. And do you think it would be helpful just for a person who's concerned about bears to have, I don't know, some sort of... <clears throat> Tail like you know maybe a long belt with a light on the end of it, and you kind of like wave it to flag, You're like just wave it in case anything's looking flagging. And then if you start running, maybe it's harder to catch you because you got this bouncing ball of light behind you. Because we could market these for the podcast, single acorn. We could have them acorn shaped, little and fundraiser, be a little light, yeah, and then be like a tail, like a prey predator, predator defense tail. So this researcher. Dirk Semen or something like that. So he, he has a video game about this. Yeah. So he created a video Tell game where he created tail. a cottontail, and then he had undergrads that played the video game, and you have to track. You have to basically chase after a rabbit through its environment, and he did it with rabbits that had this bright white tail, and then rabbits that didn't have this tail. And not surprisingly, given the context of this conversation without the tail students were far more successful at being able to capture the cottontail in the video game and wow. then with the tail the undergrads were not as successful in being so, able to capture the prey so you know my knowledge base behind a lot of this predator prey relationships are like animal documentaries david mm -hmm. attenborough narrated so if, if memory serves me a lot of the like sort of prey animals in africa that are running in a chase type situation like gazelles they don't have these like distracting tails or features so maybe i'm wrong about that but why would they not have evolved those have you ever seen it's called a stot um or uh, a pronk and it's a gait pattern that some of these little gazelle type of ungulates have where they bounce super high into the yeah. air off mm -hmm. of all four feet at the same time and that behavior is an honest signal Right, so if you're, so, imagine you're a cheetah, and you're looking out, and it's all of a sudden, like I can't this tiny little deer-like creature, the kudu, sees you, and then it just springs up, or a springbok, and it just springs up into the air like ten feet. It's an honest signal, like I'm, okay. I'm, I'm pretty good. freaking agile. Check this I'm out, yeah. Pretty good at running, and there are others that have, um, I think that have these sort of streaking or strikes on their hindquarters and white flanks so that uh, might distract that in the way can of the act in a similar way yeah hmm. so th 
this distraction element here is uh it's a behavior of flashing a tail uh this is where your expertise came comes in handy here thank you so with distractions you could distract in a few different ways so the first way is to distract uh from going after a particular individual so with killdeer so what's the yeah. killdeer defensive mechanism the one we see in our you know our work and the one i've seen elsewhere is yeah they, they pretend to be Injured, have a broken wing, kind of start making a lot of noise. They go away from the nest. The predator thinks, easy meal. And then Gilder's like, just kidding, flies away. And then the predator doesn't discover the nest. That's the story I hear. Yeah. And and, uh, yeah, that's accurate. So, and that's a bluff. So that's not an honest signal. So it's bluffing. It's saying, I'm injured. I'm, you know, I'm easy prey come find me and it draws you away from the the nest that's actually the first nest this is what I of a killdeer that i saw in singles bars i would have a come in with a cast sometimes to try to get sort of a pity broken wing it was an, more of an honest signal i think because <laughs> i was kind of scared anyway enough about yeah. me let's go back yeah, yeah but yeah so that was the first nest that i found of a killdeer was there was this mama killdeer that was on the ground. Its tail had found uh, fanned out. It has sort of this russet colored tail with these white tips. And uh, it was fanning it out. And it had this wing that was kinked out to the side. And it just looked really awful. And it was making these distress calls and ran away. And I had never heard of this before. So I started following the killdeer. And I was like, wait, what's what, why would it be doing this? Because then it just like would fly a little bit farther. And it yeah. seemed fine. So then I turned around suffering. and I went the other direction. Other direction and found the nest. Yeah. So strategy worked against it in a way. Well, I'm smart. Uh, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) presumably. Uh, Slightly smarter than your average predator. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, so it didn't work on me, but it works on most creatures, I assume. So you could distract from, you know, from the nest, or I've seen this with ruffed grouse, where they, it was a mom with her fledglings. And it was distracting me away from the young birds that were hiding in the bush. So you could distract from individuals. You could also distract from uh, body parts. So we kind of mentioned with the cottontail where it's drawing the focus to the tail, which is not a great spot if you're a predator to try and grip onto. And gray squirrels will do this with uh, flashing their tail or flicking their tail repeatedly. So doing that, uh, their tails are, they're not segmented like a horsetail, the plant, Echocetum. Right. So they don't pop off in the same way, but their tails are really weakly held together. So they'll flick their tails just kind of as a pattern of behavior generally, but particularly if there is a predator in the area and potentially distracting towards the tail a predator would go after the tail and because it's a pretty weakly jointed um, appendage, then it'll pop off. So I found tips of squirrel tails with some regularity and it's not uncommon to find a gray squirrel that's a little bit older that has a broken tail. And if you can lose just part of your tail, that's way better than if you you lose part of your liver. Yeah. Part of your head. Well, yeah. yeah, I heard possums do this. I guess I've heard some animals when they lose part of their tail, also the tail will sort of wiggle around still, kind of kind of a snake-like distracting or enticing fashion. 
Yeah, exactly. So if something's wiggling, if it distracts you for long enough that the uh, the prey animal could get away, then that's good enough. Um, I actually saw it with like a cricket leg where a cricket leg had gotten detached for some reason and it was just like spasming on the ground and it definitely attracted my attention. Um, yeah. Uh, weasels do this. So it's always seemed bizarre to me that a short-tailed weasel, which is snow white in the winter, has a black tip on its tail. So it it always just seemed like a little bit bizarre. If you're going to be so camouflaged, why would you have a black tip to your tail? Right. I keep the tip. So why? But that's for pre- that's for them dodging predators, not for them sneaking up on prey somehow yeah. with the mesmerizing black dot. Yeah, exactly. So you could you could do this uh, if you're a researcher. You could you know have a hawk that you had raised that was you know for falconry, and uh, you could train it to go after weasels. And then what you could do is you could paint little hot dogs white, and then you could put a little black tip on the tail, or just paint them all white. And then you could drag them across an enclosure with a falcon in it and see what the success rates were for capturing the hot dog, you know, the fake weasel. And it turns out that hawks are really bad at catching and, you know, air quotes here, killing the uh, the weasel if the weasel has the black dot on the tip versus if it's all white and they're able to see the weasel. So if the camouflage doesn't work and they're able to see it, then uh, if it's an all-white animal, they're far more successful at being able to capture that prey. So if you have a little dog that you're worried about, hot getting, just paint it, paint a little spot on its tail, and it's fine. Right on the tip of its tail. Especially if it's a wiener dog. Yeah, exactly. Prove it in this experiment. <laughs> hot dogs. Yeah. yeah. So, it's just, I had a wiener dog when I was a kid. Take on if you knew that. I did not know that. My grandparents told me it was born the same day as me, just to help me bond with it. I think I found out later they were lying. Um, so I don't want to go into the psychological effects that had on me. I wish They're I'd written not. all over your bizarre questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> all my behavior. We'll let our readers do or listeners do their own psychoanalysis. But I wish I'd known the dot strategy. Just yeah. to feel like I was keeping Pandora safe. <laughs> Pandora. Safer, yeah, Pandora. Strange name to name. Yeah, it's a little bit of a sinister in the box. Don't yeah. open it. So uh, another distraction. This is this is one of my favorites, and I think you know there are a bunch of videos that have gone viral around this. So one of the other ways of distraction are with large flocks and just with movement patterns. Where is this is sort of similar with a rabbit. If you can confuse your right. predator. That's um, just, it's still, I still don't quite buy it. I mean, that you gather together in a group of 10,000 and it's somehow harder to catch you because it's confusing. It just seems like randomly you could just take a net. Not that most predators have nets. Well, so there, there were conflicting hypotheses about why starlings would have these murmurations up to like over a million birds. The largest murmurations are unfathomably huge over cities in Europe where slowly as the sun starts to fade in the evening, all these starlings will flock together and come into these large roosts and then fly in these big, seemingly coordinated movement patterns over the the skyline. It's totally mesmerizing, uh, incredible to watch. And so the competing hypotheses were, well, one, they primarily do it in the the winter, so it could be a heat retention thing. Uh, Two, it could be a... Uh, scaring of predators. So if you are this loud, 
harassing it's like mob. a giant crazy dragon oh yeah or maybe yeah uh, yeah maybe <laughs> yeah like the birds um, yeah or it could be like the many eyes hypothesis which is that the more eyes you have the more vigilance you have as a population the easier it is to detect predators and then the last one is that it could just be this sort of dazzle phenomenon where you confuse your predators so that it can't see individual birds within that murmuration and it turns out that the last one the is is the right one um and that it's not actually uh around heat retention i actually this was down in southern vermont uh, I'd gone for a hike, and then this is in uh, in January a few years ago. I was coming back with my sister, and we saw this murmuration. It was only a few hundred birds, but we pulled over, and we were watching the the starlings fly in and out. And there was a, I don't remember now if it was a Cooper's or a Sharp Shin Hawk, but it was perched on one of the barns, and we watched it uh, it fly into the murmuration. Yeah. Yeah, it was just watching in complete awe. He dazzled with all stars around his head. (laughs) Yeah, and it would fly in occasionally and, you know, make an attempt at one of the starlings, and it kept missing. And it just seemed to kind of get disoriented, like it would follow one bird as it split the murmuration in half, and it would follow one half, and then it would, like, veer off and start to follow the other one. Too many options. Too much stimulus. Too many options. And so in one research project, they found that with birds, when there were higher concentrations of predators in the area, then the starlings would fly in these big flocks, and then all at once they would all go into roost, right? So if you don't have a predator around, the murmuration is important, maybe as like, okay, just in case there are predators around, we're going to do this behavior, but then it doesn't really matter. We we can as we're flying around in this murmuration, we might ultimately realize, oh, you know what? There aren't any predators. I'm just going to fly to my roost spot. But when there are predators around, everybody will fly and the murmuration at the same time and fly to the roost all at the same time. You know, I've experienced this. I don't know. Have you ever played catch a leaf in the fall where you try to catch a leaf that falls from a tree? Yeah. And it is, at least for me, it's way harder when like 30 or 40 leaves fall at the same time to catch one than if it's just one. Yeah. Which you would think you could just flail, flail about randomly, which is kind of my strategy anyway. Yeah. And you'd have a better chance with more leaves in the air, but... Yeah, and then imagine if... I mean, you could flail around and maybe you would have a higher chance of encountering uh, one of the leaves, but then imagine if the leaves could actively move yeah. away from you, then it would be much, much harder. Even harder. It's hard enough as it is. Yeah. For listeners out there, I recommend trying... Catch a leaf if you're thinking, oh, that's easy. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're shifty. Um, Those leaves, they don't want to be caught. They sure are. Yeah, so uh, another set of behaviors might just be around dissuading predators. And we mentioned this earlier with flagging with deer. Um, but alarm calls can also do this. So alarm calls are something, a sound that not all birds make, but primarily birds that move in larger flocks will make alarm calls if they see a predator. And, and that's just flagging, have... and the predator's like, okay, we see you, so we don't Yeah, You see yeah, us, so... so we're not going to bother. You'll see this with crows, uh, particularly during the nesting season. If Well, crows will get harassed by much smaller birds during the nesting season, and these alarm calls are... Even if a crow... I think we mentioned this in an earlier episode, but even if a crow is significantly larger than, say, a 
I don't know, like a Scarlet Tanager or something, the Scarlet Tanager might still harass the crow because the angry parent Tanager risks injuring the crow and so the crow will get flushed out of that site. And so this is an honest signal. The alarm call is that, hey, I'm an angry bird and you're not getting my nest. And if you try, you're going to get injured in the process. Yeah. 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 One of the interesting types of alarm calls is from the chickadee. So chickadee is an onomatopoeia. Uh, So their alarm call is chickadee. And if, you know, I've had this experience numerous times out in the woods where if I'm just kind of like walking along and, you know, very quietly in moving through the forest and a flock of chickadees moves by and I just stop and I sort of calmly watch them, one chickadee might fly up and go chickadee dee. And basically what it's saying is like, hey, everybody else in the flock, I see something out of that ordinary. Let's just be a little extra aware and pay attention. And then they'll wind up just moving on. But if I'm with my dog Boots and Boots is, you know, aggressively foraging around and chasing chipmunks and everything, the chickadees will fly in and instead of saying chickadee dee, they'll say chickadee dee 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 dee. It's the more D's. It It is true that the more D's, the more alarm they are. Yeah, it is. Up to that sometimes. I've never heard this. What's the most D's you've ever heard? Well, I about uh, I think ten or twelve, um, and that was from a um, uh, what was from a uh, goshawk up in this was up in Maine in the winter, and so uh, one of the reports I read said that they made up to like twenty seven different D's in a single alarm call, which <laughs> would be like you know having a stroke, <laughs> run out of breath, yeah. Wow. So that's a cool one because that's, you know, it's I, I typically don't think of these as honest signals in the same way as a white-tailed deer flagging is, but the alarm call is to do two things. One is to draw the attention of all the other birds that are in the flock to the predator, but it's also to signal to the predator, hey, we see you, you know, you're an ambush predator, you're not going to catch any of us because... Let's not waste all our energy and time on this. Yeah, exactly. Move on. Yeah. Hmm. And that kind of brings us to the last part of the categories for behaviors are just one of the other behaviors to avoid getting eaten yourself is to spend time in packs uh, or herds or flocks or schools or whatever. Are we going to discuss, just just so I know, my personal favorite prey strategy is like trying to make yourself look really big, way bigger than you are, kind of puff yourself up. Yes. Let's hold off on that. We'll talk okay. about that with external. That's coming Good. up next. That's okay. I can relax then. Great. Let's um, go to the pack. Go back to the pack. Because I love whirly gigs, and we're going to talk about them in a second. Ah. So if you're in a pack or herd, flock, school, whatever, um, one of the advantages is that you're one of many. And so if someone in your cohort does get eaten, your chances are far less that it will be you that's eaten. The other possible things, which I mentioned just a little bit ago was the many eyes hypothesis. So if you're in a flock of 100, you have 100 sets of eyes that are potentially looking out for possible threats to the environment. And then you would need a complex language like chickadees to be able to communicate information about direction, uh, vertical position in the environment. So if it's down on the ground, up in the canopy, vervet monkeys have different alarm calls for uh, prey or predators that are up in the sky versus in the trees versus on the ground, and yeah, um, 
one of the things that does go down uh, is vigilance. So if you are one of a hundred, the amount of time that you have to spend looking out for potential predators goes down. Uh, you can also be sort of lazy and cheat the system. We could say, you know what, all these I'm other not look at all they're doing. Fuckers. They're looking out for me. Totally, I don't have to do any work. But if everyone did that, then. Right. So cheating strategies only work when most things don't cheat. Uh, so you just have to find the right balance. You just have to find a, a bunch of nice chickadees to flock with and then cheat now, them all. I feel like I've seen in certain cases, maybe this is dolphins that do this or certain kinds of marine mammals. Well, they'll, they'll, herd, they'll kind of herd some sort of bait fish into a ball. They'll kind of like make it into a small pack and then they'll go into it and eat it more easily that way. Are there... Other cases like that of a pack working against the prey, or if they're packed together too tightly, they're not as mobile, or I don't know. Um, are there studies that have shown their potential disadvantages sometimes packing together, clumping together? Um, I mean, herd animals will sometimes get nomadic predators that will follow them along. And so if, you, if you're a pack of chickadees, and you're... Uh, so I've had this in a uh, situation before where I have a spot that I'll just go and sit in the woods and it's the same spot and I'll go over and over again. And the more time I spend there, the less vigilant things are around my presence. So I've had the experience where I've been sitting out there and a predatory bird will come into the environment and chickadees will alarm it. And while all the chickadees are alarming it and titmice and uh, downy woodpeckers are focusing their attention onto the predator. I'm another potential predator, and they've lost focus on you. And so, so predators all... might want to hunt in packs. They could have like a distractor predator, and the other one sneaks up behind. Yeah, it'd be a, a great tactic, like velociraptors in Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> Clever girl. <laughs> they got that. Yeah. So that's one of the disadvantages is if you're a loud, gregarious species that's spending time in a pack. Yeah, you might be less likely to die, but you as a whole will be far more likely to be detected. You're more conspicuous. Like a, a towhee, which is an, another type of bird that's a ground-feeding bird, when they detect a predator, so if birds in the environment start alarming, what a towhee does is it just shuts up, right? They're scratching up the, the leaf litter, hunting for insects and stuff. It just stops, right? And so it disappears, and all the other birds are you know, making alarm calls. So yeah, that's, I mean, I guess an advantage of being solitary is it's easier to be under the radar. Yeah. Tellies. Yeah. Oh, with, uh, this was kind of cool. So in terms of the vigilance thing, you could be lazy and rely on everything else to be vigilant for you. And collectively, you might have the same collective vigilance level. But if you are a more vulnerable part of the population, then it would be important for you to increase your vigilance and not necessarily rely on the other individuals to help you out. So with bighorn sheep, lactating females, their level of vigilance doesn't change regardless of the size of their, their group that they're foraging with. Whereas with other bighorn sheep, the amount of time that they spend being vigilant is entirely dependent on how many other bighorn sheep they're surrounded by. So a lactating uh, bighorn sheep is not going to risk the laziness of their peers. Uh, because for... they're taking care of all these other, they're young. Yeah, exactly. 
so they can't afford to mess up. Yeah. But the other ones might have a little bit, they don't have to worry about the huge energy investment of raising young. They don't have to worry about losing that investment if a predator comes around. It's not as important to them. So um, they're If you're a ran random bighorn sheep, you can just get a bunch of lactating ones to come along with you and they'll do. Yeah, here, right? They're already doing all the work of like feeding, producing milk, feeding their young, keeping them safe. And then they're also the vigilant ones in the pack. Yeah. I mean, typically they're also the older individuals that are lactating that have successfully reproduced. And so they have more experience. They have uh, potentially more body mass res energy reserves to dedicate or allocate towards reproduction. They can afford yeah. it. Yeah. And that kind of goes along with the other advantage of being in a pack is, yeah, this idea of like the sacrificial lamb or the one individual that gets eaten if a predator does successfully hunt an individual from your population. And so there are strategies to combat that, right? So say, so this is where we get to whirligigs. So whirligigs are these little beetles that um, they're diving beetles. So they spend a lot of time up at the surface and then they'll dive down underwater. Uh, but they'll often be in these large rafts of dozens to hundreds of individuals. And with photo image, like a image tracking software, you can mark individual beetles. And so you can follow their movement patterns in this sort of floating mass of whirligig beetles. And so in an experiment, you could uh, track what are the differences, maybe demographic wise, male versus female of the beetles to see if there's a difference of who's on the inside, which are less likely to get eaten versus who's on the outside. And in a cool study, they were able to track to track who the hungry whirligig beetles were and who the well-fed ones were. And it turns out that the hungry ones are the ones that are going to have a higher risk tolerance. And so will spend more of their time on the outside of these wraps. And so they're going to risk their life in order to, you know, acquire food. And so they're, they're risking being prey for uh, a predatory fish in order to get well-fed. And then as soon as they are well-fed, then they'll come back to the raft and they'll try and weasel their way towards the center of it to avoid being on the edges where you're more likely to get eaten. This is kind of a cool strategy. Yeah. I have to say, whirligig beetles, Finn and I, my son Finn and I are quite enamored of them. Although for a long time, we've called them the things that go buzz because they sort of buzz around the water. Yeah. Yeah, we had a song we wrote the other day about them. Let's hear it. Yeah, in case listeners want to um, have a song that they can sing when they see them. It's we are the things that go booze. We are the things that go booze. We have nothing to lose because we are the things that go booze. <laughs> sing that a lot. That's great. Simple, catchy. Mm -hmm. Everything you need to know about them. Yeah, and it kind of gives them that daring, they have nothing to lose kind of aura. Yeah. Like the I ones on the outside. We realize now we're singing about the ones on the outside. Definitely. They have nothing to lose. Yeah. They're like the kind of scrappy ones that you're rooting for. The ones on the outside, they're risking their lives for the, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so those are sort of a bunch uh, of behaviors and we sorry, wrapped. Can I ask one more question about them? What yeah. eats them again? Fish? Really gets? Yeah, fish. Okay. Just need uh, before I can move yeah. on. Um, okay. So, when we were talking about all the different behavioral adaptations, we tied in a whole bunch of different physical features. Um, but if we try to just isolate our conversation around the external physical features that prey have, 
they're like the armadillos. So there's physical armor or plating that you might have or porcupines that turtles. have turtles have shells. Insects have the exoskeletons. If you look at the teeth of short-tailed shrews, they have sort of these purple tines or tips to them. And those are infused with iron oxides, which are a strengthening component. What? They have like metallic tipped teeth. Yeah, which is the same stuff essentially that's in uh, the incisors of rodents. And so for insects or for shrews, which are insectivores, they have those for piercing piercing through the... And they're venomous as well. Is this the same shrew that's venomous? Yep. Yeah. Good Um, Lord. Metal tipped teeth, monsters. (laughs) Yeah. But if you think about... uh, So for their prey, like beetles and ants and all sorts of insects, those shells do a couple of different things. One, the shells are their skin, so they help keep moisture inside the organism. But the other advantage is they help uh, protect uh, themselves from predators um, by having this hard exoskeleton that is hard to pierce through. I do the same thing with my hard emotional shell. Yeah, so someone has to have iron infused uh, <laughs> of yeah, emotional daggers. Cold heart. Yeah, hard to hurt me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Don't give away what what my weak my weakness, Teague. Well, the good thing those kind of daggers well, are the hardest me. daggers they're to hard, find. They're hard to attach to your own. Yeah, emotional weapons. So you that's sort of making it difficult for uh, predators to crunch your body and get at your vital innards um so that's like a physical barrier but you could also have um uh crypsis which is just blending into your environment um and so there are all sorts of different types of uh essentially camouflage is crypsis and camouflage the same thing crypsis just a cooler way to say it way cooler saves time letters yeah (laughs) yeah and uh, so when you think about how you have to blend into your environment, there are different strategies that predators will use for detecting where their prey is, right? So some are visual predators. So you might be visually camouflaged um, with your environment. Uh, you might be a predator that hunts using smell. And so there are ways of masking your smell. So one of my favorites is the loving mother deer will lick the uh the <laughs> rectum of her fawn and then it, that causes the fawn to uh to poop and then the mother will eat the poop of the fawn uh and so fawns I don't really understand how fawns are essentially scentless but their their parents love them so much or their mother loves them so much uh, that they'll eat their own feces because this is the only thing that smells on the fawn. So while the fawns are in the springtime, they have that dappled, uh, or they have that white speckling on their backs to make them blend in with the dappled sunlight, and then they don't smell and they their poop doesn't you know emit a scent because it's in their mother's gut, and so it's really hard for predators to detect them. Birds will do that too, right? Yeah, do, there's many yeah. birds that will just assiduously remove the poop of their young from the nest exactly i think that's more of a hygienic thing so the young will have these sort of mucus coated fecal sacs and so you can see the parental birds flying off of these little white hygiene gelatinous that's just basic hygiene yeah i think that's more not with predators the scent thing i mean eating the poop is i think you know that's noble 
but you know the licking the butthole part takes it to the next level i think <laughs> well you only have you only have so much time in a day and so you don't want to just wait yeah, around for your offspring yeah, to you can't just sit there and like, are you ready yet yeah so it just speeds gonna, up the process a little bit. Yeah, this is a good example. This is one of the many examples of where humans really should not imitate the natural world <laughs> no, no. blindly. What Rarely ever. This is why whenever you hear someone trying to justify some human social structure, human yeah, you behavior just bring up this by example. using... Oh, really? Uh, Would you... Like... Yeah, yeah. So Cripsis kind of dovetails in a little bit with mimicry where... Crypsis is just blending into your environment, and then mimicry is actively mimicking with your body form uh, something in the environment. So there are all these stick bugs, uh, they're little caterpillars that look like little twigs, and often they have behaviors. Like if you look like a twig and you just kind of hop all over the place and are super active. It doesn't work as well, yeah. It doesn't work, yeah. So you have to be mostly stationary. Twiggy Um, in your behavior. Yeah. So you can mimic a twig, uh, which would be something inedible, but not toxic. Or you can mimic something that's toxic um, and gross. So one of my favorite uh, insects, which is a type of moth, is called the beautiful wood nymph. And I found one of these. I've only seen one once. And I was walking along this trail and there's this uh, little sumac that was sort of bent over the trail. And there was a little bird poop that was on one of the leaflets. Bird poop caterpillars. But it like looked just slightly off because it's symmetrical. Um, And it just caught me. Poop is not symmetrical most often. And uh, and so then I looked and it it sure enough was uh, the adult form of the beautiful wood nymph moth, which has such like a, a graceful, nice, pleasing name. And it just looks like bird poop, (laughs) which is pretty gross. But if you were a predator of caterpillars and you flew along and you saw this bird poop, you would not eat it. That was the moth form. Because there's also many uh, chrysalises, I believe, that look like bird poop and caterpillars that look like bird poop. My son was very into collecting caterpillars the last couple of years. So, Yeah. Yeah, I think chrysalises are usually pretty uh cryptic so they're either hidden under logs or under leaf litter uh, or in bark and kind of blend into the environment rather than mimicking something in it yeah maybe it was more caterpillars but i feel like there were a few chrysalises that resembled at least in my mind yeah a little dropping dropping. yeah um there's also sort of the like big famous caterpillar mimic um, which are like the spicebush uh, swallowtails that have the two big eye spots on them that look kind of like a snake. And then they're like this whole class of um, uh, uh, horntails. Uh, I think they're horntails. Horntails? Yeah. Um, I think they're called like snake horntails. And they mimic uh, snakes in the most incredible way. I'll link to a video in the show notes because you sort of have to see it to believe it. But they will sort of scrunch up their the front end of their bodies and then invert themselves so their legs are up on the top of the uh, up on top, and they look exactly like a viper. It's really cool. And some of them have like these little depressions that look like the pits on vipers. And they'll sort of curl their body out off of the branch so that they mimic also not just the appearance, but the posture and kind of behavior of the snake. Threatening posture. Yeah. 
So again, it's not enough just to look like something. You need to often have, you know, adaptations from both the behavior category and the the physical adaptation side of things. And again, these are these are bluffs. Mimicry is always a, a bluff. You're mimicking something that is inedible or toxic so that something thinks you're something that you're not actually. Sometimes in a job interview, you pretend, I don't know, I'm sure you don't need to do this, but you pretend to have experience that you don't have necessarily. The bluff, I was thinking about the term bluff. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just something humans do in poker, it's this, this going on everywhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, a large part of culture is, is bluffing on some level. Like, um, you can have a, you know, a fancy car or something that is a marker of how much wealth you have, but maybe, you know, you owe an insane amount of money and you're like barely keeping up with your payments and stuff. And it's like, everything is being sacrificed. So you can have this one marker of wealth that you don't actually have. And so it's a bluff on some level where um, they're like, Fake. No one would accuse my car of being that. <laughs> yeah. That's a bluff yeah. I had not making. Yeah. But you could. I mean, so there's like, you know, uh, cubic zirconium or something like fake diamonds. And so there are these markers that you can have that are like knockoffs of the actual thing that pretend as though you have something that you don't. So bluffing it can be an effective strategy um, for social status or for whatever emotional right. <laughs> needs you have. Good. Yeah. Thank you for validating my, yet again, one of my habits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that kind of covers some of the external features that you have. And then the last uh, category, uh, so we have behaviors, external features, and then internal features. And internal features, because a predator can't see it, um, there's often an external marker that goes along with it. Um, but having some sort of internal chemistry that makes you toxic to predators um, and so I mentioned aposomatic coloration. So this is with red Fs or with uh, coral snakes or other snakes that are, or other organisms that are toxic. They monarchs, have these for example. Bright colors, monarchs, monarchs, monarchs fairly, right? mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then with plants, plants have a whole suite of chemical uh, defenses that they have at their disposal. And it's hard for uh, a plant to communicate over longer distances, but they can release what are called green leaf volatiles. And these are airborne molecules that uh, plants can detect from the environment. So if there is a predator that comes in and they start munching on the leaves of something, then that plant will release these GLVs, green leaf volatiles, into the environment and other parts of that same individual plant can receive that and ramp up chemical defenses. chemical defenses and then also other plants in that environment can also ramp up chemical defenses um, or they can do something so like if you mow your lawn it smells really sweet and it's like such a pleasing smell for the grass that's the grass like screaming <laughs> to the rest of the grasses in the end of it, the area like hey there's an insane predator that's crazy munching metal everything. predator yeah it's worse and than so true and so often there isn't like enough time to, you know, ramp up chemical production. So what they can do is just send uh, all their sugars, their energy investment down into their roots so that if the above ground parts do get chewed down, then they have all the sugars cached away and then they can send up growth after the lawnmower predator disappears. <laughs> 
Um, there's some cool studies too with like uh, tobacco. So tobacco is kind of a, a classic model for studying green leaf volatiles. And uh, there are some significant uh, hornworm uh, uh, caterpillars that are really destructive. And so tobacco plants have a response that you can elicit. So if you if you just like poke a tobacco leaf and then spray water on it, then nothing will happen, right? Because that might mimic a branch falling out of the environment onto the tobacco plant and then puncturing the leaf and then it rains, right? So if you responded to that by producing all of these chemical defenses, you would be wasting a ton of energy. So you want to make sure that you're only doing that at appropriate as an appropriate response to an actual invasion of predators. So if you take that same tobacco leaf and you puncture it again, but then you take insect saliva and you rub it on the leaf, then it'll start producing all of these volatile compounds uh, that are a chemical defense. It's being eaten, not poked. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Is nicotine a defense chemical in tobacco? Yeah, so one of the interesting things is like if you look at any... Anything that tastes strong or has some like medicinal effect on humans or pathological effect is a defense of some sort. So um, like we, you know, we drink a whole bunch of teas. We like the way that lavender smells. And for us, those might not be. Um, well, like lavender is a sedative, right? And so if you're an herbivore and you're eating it, it's not good to eat a sedative. Um, it might be good medicinally occasionally to eat it, um, but it can be dangerous to ingest large concentrations of it. So yeah, so nicotine, which is a stimulant, uh, I used to, on my runs when I lived in Santa Barbara, there were tobacco leaves and I would just take like a tiny little bit and a really tiny bit because it can be deadly if you drink a tea out of it. Um, and I would chew it and it would just give me this little jolt buzz but again, if I ate it, then it could be fatal because it increases your heart rate and vasodilation. On the stuff. edge. Um, yeah. But as a running stimulant on these, you know, 25 mile long runs. Yeah, you got to do what good. you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't see a lot of marathon runners with like chewing tobacco, just like munching on it, spitting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. I don't know that it was like them. chewing tobacco. You but, see a lot. Okay. Well, yeah. Try it. But I, I mean, you kind of wonder, like, uh, you know, it's, chew is a big thing in baseball, and it's a stimulant for sure. And so it's just like a legal uh, dose of, yeah, yeah performance it's a enhancing drug. Yeah. So close to a good drug. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I think that'll, that'll do it. That's sort of a chaotic and uh, jumping around from topic to topic overview of prey's interactions with predators. But essentially, I, I think the main point here is that predators have a really, really significant impact on the way that prey, their prey, experience the world. And so prey have to keep up with the adaptations of potential predators in order to stay alive long enough to uh, effectively reproduce. So and predators these... also, right, have to continually adapt or they just won't have enough to eat and then they'll die off. Yeah, exactly. So they both have to keep evolving just to stay in place, which is the main tenet of the uh, Red Queen hypothesis, which we talked about in previous episodes. Do you know of any um, animals that 
like it's a there are two species and they're one's a predator and one's the prey for part of the year but then it reverses for another part of the year and what was the predator becomes the prey and yeah definitely um maybe in different cycles of their life but I was yeah exactly it's like so, it's over the course of the year balanced out a little bit yeah so uh that definitely happens with different life stages and so you might have a um like the weasel maybe things eat little weasels but then the weasel gets them yeah i'm trying to think i mean they're like nest robbing birds but i don't imagine a jay would go after like a red-tailed hawk nestling or something um but i think this probably happens with uh amphibians where maybe at uh, potentially at like one life stage a tadpole is prey for a uh, smallmouth bass and then at another life stage the um the say a bullfrog might be predating upon the fry or the young smallmouth bass so, i guess with eggs pretty much generally eggs are delicious yeah um, so whenever something's an egg it's prey yeah yeah i mean crayfish will eat the eggs of fish and so they're predators of yeah fish but then also fish will eat uh adult crayfish so that's something where you have this sort of inverted predator prey relationship based on the life cycle do you know where the word prey uh comes from take it's my etymological moment i would i would assume that it i mean prey and predator sounds so similar so predator we learned last time is the act of plundering from pirates uh-huh so aider aider is something that does something and preda was plunder so what is the prey must be the the pr plunder the plunder exactly right predator and prey have the same exact root the booty the booty as it were the pirate's booty it's back to your fawn <laughs> yeah this fawn fawn story that i think is going to stick with at least me if not our listeners <laughs> yeah in my head i i've been writing a, a kid's book actually no that's perfect because next season we're going to talk all about scat that's uh, right and so yeah we'll come back to the deer to story revisit yeah. this story yeah you get so predator and prey are linked etymologically as well as ev on the evolutionary uh, it's so beautiful full <laughs> beautiful circle relationship composed of killing and eating and terror yeah Great. Well, thanks, Glenn, for, for hanging out and talking about prey with me. You're welcome, and, uh, Teague. This helped me, as usual, to learn a little bit more about my own instincts. Great. So, yeah, we'll see you next time. Okay, thanks don't get eaten. Us. Don't eat too many things. Keep the balance. <laughs> All Take right. care. If you have any broken wings or uh, especially if you know any paramilitary uh, people with broken wings or broken aircraft, send them our way, please. That's right. Captain Kildears. <laughs> <laughs> all right bye bye thanks for joining us fellow naturalists that wraps up our look at exploitation next in our ongoing investigation into symbiosis we look at what happens when resources are limited in this battle royale organisms compete for food water shelter and sex the only game where everyone loses and episodes drop every fortnight so don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app you can also head over to crowspath.org for your natural history fix, archived episodes, online programming, and lots more. Or become a supporter of the podcast and the awesome work we do here at Crow's Path over at patreon.com forward slash Crow's Path. Until then, engage your curiosity, discover your world, and we'll see you soon on The Single Acorn.